I am naturally very, very bad at this. Like I would be the kind of person who like, you know, has my phone out at the dinner table. I'm like very addicted to my email. Like, and I've tried to get better about having those things far away so that the, the technology we have around is not messing with our in real life social connections. Um, because the data on that are actually really scary. This is some work um, coming out of the lab of Liz Dunn, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia. And she's done all this crazy work looking at what the mere presence of cell phones kind of does to our social connection. And so she finds that, like, not even if you're on the phone, but the mere presence of a phone can actually reduce your enjoyment of a dinner that you're having with other people. Um, like, just if I just have you rate, like, how delicious was this dinner? How much were you paying attention to it? You just pay attention to it less if your phone is out in a place that you can see it, even if you're not using it. That was Dr. Lori Santos. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 178. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. In a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to our guest for today, Dr. Lori Santos, professor of psychology and well-known happiness expert. But before we get to that, I would love to say a big thank you to the 400 plus people in our Patreon community whose contributions of $1 or more per episode are literally what make this entire show possible. As you probably know by now, this is a 100% listener-supported show with no ads or sponsors. That means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome, regular people just like you. If you enjoy listening, if the show makes you feel less alone, I'd love for you to join our community over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your financial support is what will allow me to keep making new episodes, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's deeply important to me that everyone involved in this show gets paid for their time and work, and your support is what allows that to be possible. So thank you so much if you're in that community, and if you want to come and join us one more time, it's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Dr. Lori Santos. Lori is a professor of psychology and the head of Silliman College at Yale University. After observing a disturbing level of unhappiness and anxiety among her students, she began teaching a course entitled Psychology and the Good Life, which quickly became the most popular course in Yale's history and has also reached over 350,000 people from all over the world through an online version. Her new podcast, The Happiness Lab, explores this topic in detail as well. In this episode, Lori shares the science behind what we can actually do to improve our happiness and well-being. She tells stories, debunks myths of things that we wrongly think will make us happy, and replaces them with simple tools that are proven to have a real impact. It was such a treat for me to learn from Lori in this conversation. I'm already implementing a couple of the things that she shared, and it's been really helpful. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are good to go. Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So drop me into your real life. It's mid-September 2019. What's feeling good for you right now? What's challenging? What's on your mind? Drop me in. Yeah, so uh, I guess the the thing that's both feeling good and feeling challenging, because I think it can be linked up, is that I'm starting a new podcast on the science of well-being called The Happiness Lab. Yeah, and what has felt challenging about that for you? 
Um, well, you know, I'm a nerdy professor, like in the ivory tower, and you know, so I'm used to kind of thinking about the science of well-being in, you know, in a teaching format at Yale. Um, but doing the podcast has been really, really fun, but also really challenging. So unlike yours, it's not, it's very scripted and kind of long, not long form conversations, but you know, really kind of trying to get interviews to give you these bite-sized nuggets. You can teach really specific science concepts and it's been super, super fun, but also just uh, a lot of work, like a real challenge and kind of growth for me in terms of thinking about how to present the material and how to get it to come across in an audio format, which is new for me too. So it's it's been the thing that's taking up a lot of my airtime, but also something that's been both really, really fun and really challenging and really causing me to grow a bunch. Yeah. Where did the idea for the podcast come from, especially if that's a new medium for you? Was there a day when you're like, oh, this might be fun? Or was it someone else's idea? How did that come up? Well, uh, the the whole idea of the science of well-being came from a course that I taught at Yale, um, which went a little bit viral. It became the largest class ever at Yale, but also uh, kind of just generated tons of press, you know, so there were book opportunities and podcast opportunities, all these kind of opportunities came my way. And the podcast kind of emerged as a format I wanted to try out for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, I think when you think about sort of what the science of happiness teaches us, you kind of get lots of interesting sort of episodic tidbits. You know, it's not, it's it, in, in some ways it makes sense to do kind of as a big book, which had sort of these general themes. But I think the podcast format was great because I think there's like, you know, little half hour, 45 minute bite-sized chunks that you can learn about the science, figure out how to apply it in your own life. So it kind of worked really, really well with a podcast format. Um, the second thing was that was a format that was totally new for me. You know, this thinking in terms of how to script these interesting stories and kind of tell this tell this new tale about the science of well-being. Like, that just seemed really fun. Um, and the third reason was that one of the potential people I would work with in, in context of this podcast, it's a podcast put out by Pushkin Industries, um, but one of the people who worked that uh, was a really good friend of mine uh, from graduate school, uh, my producer, Ryan Dilley. And so he's an amazing storyteller and just a really good friend. And so the idea of like, oh, I could do this podcast, but I would actually be partnering up this person I'm really close with, you know, who I respect so much, who I know tells stories so well, like it just felt like a really great partnership. So so those kind of reasons altogether were kind of of the many things I was going to follow up on on the science of well-being, where the podcast came from. Yeah, I love that. Opportunities to collaborate with smart people who are great in their field. And I think about that a lot as someone who mostly works alone. Obviously, you know, having a podcast enables me to have these types of conversations. So it's not completely alone, but I've been really craving more creative collaboration lately. And so that totally makes sense why, especially if you were going to try a new medium and something that was going to stretch you, that you would want to do that in partnership with, you know, the right person. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I'm currently working on a book idea kind of related to this whole thing. And it's just much less fun when you're not tossing ideas back and forth with people. Um, you know, as a professor in psychology, I have a lab. So I have these graduate students and these college students and, you know, postdoctoral fellows, like these teams of people who I think about ideas with. And when I thought about like, you know, me by myself at a desk, kind of just doing this alone, I was like, this is way less fun and possibly less productive too. Yeah. So tell me the story of how you wound up at Yale. So, uh, so I'm a professor of psychology by training. My podcast is all about the science of well-being, but um, my day job is thinking about what makes the human mind special. Um, I'm really interested in this question of what we as humans do uniquely. Uh, and so I study that by studying uh, how non-human animals think, particularly monkeys. Um, so I work with monkeys on a 
on the Caribbean island. It's just an odd day job, but it works for me. Um, and so I was uh, doing work in this field as a PhD student, um, and Yale kind of came up as one of the places that I could potentially uh, go teach. It was like an awesome job for like a young grad student to kind of land, um, a little bit more than I intended when I first got started. Uh, but, but yeah, so it just kind of was part of the academic path. And the switch to some of the work on the science of well-being happened only just recently. I've been at Yale for the last 16 years. But I switched to the science of well-being more recently when I took on a new role here um, as one of Yale's heads of colleges. Um, so it kind of requires some explanation. So Yale's kind of one of these strange schools like Hogwarts, where it has these like schools within a school, you know, kind of like Gryffindor or Slytherin kind of thing. Um, I'm head of Silliman College, which is one of Yale's residential colleges. And that means in this new role, I live on campus with students. So I went from a professor, you know, who did my research and stood at the front of this big classroom to someone who was like living on campus with students and seeing their day-to-day life. And that was when I realized we needed to do more to teach them about, you know, how to live a better life and how to reduce this kind of awful mental health crisis we see on college campuses right now. Um, so it was kind of a long answer, but it was sort of the path from, you know, what I used to do when I first got to Yale to kind of what I'm doing now. Yeah. Also, this is the place for long answers. So <laughs> feel free to take as many tangents as you want. I'm interested that the shift for you from, you know, like you said, you know, researching, being a professor, I assume living on your own or, you know, not living with students. What was personally that transition like as your living situation changed? Yeah, I think it was it was definitely unexpected. I mean, it's a really strange role, right? You're kind of um, this, people think of it in terms of like being a den mother, but it's more like kind of being a benevolent aunt or almost a CEO, some combination of benevolent aunt and CEO for this community of students where you kind of help shape the culture, help think about programming. You're kind of a mentor to all of them, you know, a kind of advice giver. So I wasn't really sure what to expect when I started it, but it's been amazing. Um, so I live on campus with my husband. We don't have any kids ourselves. Um, and so these students end up becoming kind of like our kids in lots of ways, right? It really feels like this rich community that I've become part of. And it's been it's been just much more amazing than I expected. At first, I was worried, you know, it's like I'm going to be on campus with students and, you know, how do I have my own life and so on. But it's just like as a parent, how you develop your own life and your own, you know, separation from your kids, I think, in certain ways. And it's just been amazing to kind of watch them grow and to get to know them. This is my fourth year as head of college, which means that the students I came in with when they were first years are now seniors. And so I've kind of done the full arc of watching their career, you know, watching them come into school with their parents when they were nervous and they didn't know what they would do to kind of students who are about to graduate and go off into the real world. And that kind of connection with students has just been so meaningful and kind of feeling like I can shape what their college experience is like has just been such a privilege. Yeah. It's funny that you compared it to the Hogwarts houses. I I mentioned before we started recording that right now I am on a trip to the UK. I'm a massive Harry Potter fan and I'm doing like all of the (laughs) Harry Potter tours, like the walking tours, the studio, like all the Harry Potter things. (laughs) I like laugh to myself. Yeah. The the students, it's it's odd that Yale does look more like Hogwarts than you would think. Like they joke that... you know, the dining hall looks like Hogwarts and the courtyard looks like Hogwarts. So they, they joke about it being a Hogwarts experience. So it's, it's closer to home than you might think. Okay, well, then I have to ask, which house are you in Hogwarts-wise? Um, well, there's a lot of, so I'm in Silliman College. And so a lot of people think that Silliman might be connected to Slytherin. Not <laughs> so. I think we're much more of a kind of Gryffindor kind of vibe at Silliman. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I'm in Slytherin, so don't, and if, even yeah. <laughs> if you were, you're accepted here. <laughs> Slytherins are safe here. Oh, that's funny. Um, so you mentioned briefly 
a mental health crisis on college campuses. Will you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. And this was, you know, I I was kind of, I mean, I'm on college campuses as a professor, right. But was still kind of blindsided by the degree of this once I kind of got in the trenches and saw what students were dealing with. So, I mean, just in terms of just personal stuff, you know, I just like students are just incredibly stressed. You know, they're so forward thinking. They're so worried about what job they're going to get after graduation or what internship they're going to get over the summer that they almost give themselves panic attacks. Like they're just like kind of not present and in the present moment. And so many of them report feeling lonely or just really disconnected. And, you know, at first I thought this is just something weird about Yale. You know, it's just maybe this is just an elite school. And so I started digging into the statistics on this. And it turns out it's not just Yale and it's not just elite schools. Like this is a set of issues that we're facing nationally. So the most recent national college health statistics that came out suggest that over 40% of college students report being too depressed to function. Over 60% say that they're overwhelmingly anxious. Another 60% say that they're very lonely most of the time. And more than one in 10, more than one in 10, has seriously considered suicide in the last year. Mm. Um, and this is like awful, right? And and it's it's awful and it's also new. Like those depression statistics, it turns out that we have double the number of people, double double the number of young people who are seriously depressed than we had less than 10 years ago. So we've basically doubled the number of students in serious psychological dep- distress in less than a decade. So it's like crippling. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about like, oh, there's snowflakes and blah, 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 millennials, you know, but like we're actually facing like a really serious mental health crisis among our young people. And very few people kind of know about it or even are thinking about what they can do about it. Was this something that you were thinking about ever in your work previously? No, as I said, you know, I was kind of this very ivory tower, you know, figure out how animals think kind of researcher, like the practical side of things was, you know, very far from like the type of thing I was thinking about. But once I got in the trenches and saw the need for it, you know, especially in this community that I'm so close with, you know, these are, these aren't just like, you know, kind of random students. These are like, you know, people I care about who are in my community, who I know on a first name basis, who, you know, I want to see succeed and so on. And to just see that they were missing their time at Yale because, you know, they were just so depressed and anxious, you know, they're, they're kind of fast forwarding. They're like, well, you know, as soon as I get past midterms or it's like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you only have four years here at this amazing place that you all worked so hard to get to, you know, how can you be kind of just fast forwarding it? So, yeah, so it wasn't something I had been thinking about before, But because I had training in psychology, it was, you know, a set of work that I knew. I kind of retrained a little bit in this sort of science of well-being stuff. Um, And I decided to do the thing that professors do best, which is like, you know, if I wanted to let Yale students know about what they could do to improve their well-being, I was like, well, I teach a class. You know, that's what professors do. We teach classes. And so I kind of prepped a very practical class uh, called Psychology and the Good Life that was all based on the kinds of things that you can do to feel a little bit better. Yeah. And so when you were putting together the structure, the syllabus for that class initially, what were you trying to either do differently than what had been done or like what of that subject was of most interest to you personally? Well, what I really wanted to do wasn't just to teach students the science because like, you know, they could learn the science of all kinds of things in psychology. What I wanted to do was to teach them the science so that they could put it into practice, which is a little bit different and not typical for, you know, like a social science kind of class. You know, there's lots of classes where they read about psychology studies and how, you know, the mind works, but there's not many like classes where they're like, okay, let's put this into practice. Like none of this is just like, you know, in your textbook. Like we want to think, how are you going to use this on Thursday when you go out with your friends? 
And so I tried to structure the class both in terms of like what they'd be learning. Like they did really learn about science. It was like a normal like Ivy League class. But they also sort of had to figure out how to put these things into practice. And to kind of help with that, I sort of gave them homework where the homework was you do these different practices that we know will improve your well-being. Um, I christened these things rewirements because kind of a play on college requirements, but hmm. college rewirements. It's kind of a dorky joke that only professors get. But um, but so they had students had these rewirements where every week they had to do one of these practices that we know can kind of make you feel better. And so these were things from like, you know, taking time from grati- for gratitude and taking time to meditate, even things like you have to exercise and you have to sleep. And they literally had it in their assignment, like do on Thursday is like, you know, you have to exercise this many hours a week or something, you know, so it was kind of weird class. I wasn't sure how the powers that be at Yale that were going to take it when I first proposed it. But my first kind of hint that something was weird about this class was that when we, when I finally kind of submitted the class to the powers that be, so there's a committee at Yale that sort of reviews courses and makes sure they're kind of academically rigorous enough and, you know, they have the right kinds of assignments and things. Um, normally, like many administrative committees, these folks uh, do their due diligence. So they come back with lots of things you should change and so on. And my first hint that this class was different was that that committee came back with like no changes. They're like, great, it sounds sounds good. And I think they even said something like, I hope lots of students take this. This seems like it's going to be a great class. And I'm like, oh, that's weird, you know. But at Yale, we don't really know how many students are interested in the class. So, you know, I kind of just waited till the semester started uh, to kind of figure out how many students were actually going to be interested and want to take this. I mean, and then obviously from there, you said it wound up being the most popular course in Yale history, which like, <laughs> that's yeah, a wild accomplishment. Yeah, I, was, I was expecting like, you know, maybe 30 or 40 students to come. You know, that's like a typical Yale class. Um, it's funny because, the you know, we don't know necessarily how many students are going to take the class, but Yale tries to do all these things to kind of track, you know, who's take, who's looking at which classes to get a sense of what size room they need and, and how many like teaching assistants and things. And so there's like a little graph that you can look at. They call it course demand statistics, where you can kind of watch in real time as students are signing up for your class. Um, and most of those little graphics had a, a, a scale that went from zero students to 100 students, you know, because that's sort of typical Yale. Um, but when I logged in and looked at mine, it went from zero students to 1,000 students. And I was like, wait a minute, like, I'm off by order of magnitude, like, what is happening? Um, and what was happening was that uh, by the time we got to the first class, over 800 students had signed up to take it. Um, there was no classroom on campus where we could teach the class that was big enough to fit everyone. So we taught it in the university chapel. But even then, uh, more and more students started signing up, and we got probably another 400 students to the point that uh, we were just under 1,200 students and had to teach the class in a university concert hall. And in the end, it was like just uh, under one out of every four students at Yale were trying to take the class. That's wild. Okay, so from your perspective, how do you teach a class to 1,200 people? Well, that was new. <laughs> I wasn't really sure, you know, or just kind of being on stage in this concert hall, you know, it's not often that, you know, you're teaching a class, an Ivy League class that feels like you're like Bon Jovi, you know, it felt like we needed like pyrotechnics, <laughs> you know, kind of this craziness. Um, yeah, it was, it was a huge challenge. And, and I think I did lots of things that, you know, I do differently, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, one was that, uh, you know, I really taught the class kind of with this scientific mind thinking, you know, is teaching or, when I teach Yale students this stuff, is it going to make them feel better, right? The whole goal was improving their well-being, and I really wanted to test scientifically if that worked. And when I was going to teach the class, assuming it would be 30 people, I thought, well, I could just give like a little in-class survey before and after and see if this kind of worked. Um, you know, it's tricky to do when you have 1,200 students. And so in the end, I 
didn't really get the logistics in place in time to kind of do these sort of pre-post assessments to really test if what I was doing actually helped students. Um, and this wasn't just a bummer for me, like other scientists who study this stuff were actually really pissed off at me. Like some of them emailed and was like, how did you not, you know, you had this one opportunity to test if this class was like helping the whole campus and you didn't do it. Like, what were you thinking? And I was like, <laughs> I was really behind, like there's a lot going on. Um, the other kind of crazy logistic thing that happened was that about two weeks into the class, uh, we got a New York Times article about the class. Like someone at the New York Times had heard about the class and thought, you know, this is so interesting that, you know, like a quarter of the Yale students are taking this class on uh, happiness. And after that New York Times article came out, that was when things really got crazy because uh, for basically every week after that, for the rest of the semester, we had a major press organization that was in there filming the class while I was teaching it. And so now it's not just 1,200 students to worry about and try to figure out how do you teach a class, you know, in a concert hall. Now I'm like figuring out how to teach a class in a concert hall with the Today Show filming me the whole time. Oh my time. gosh. So, yeah, so it was like a little surreal. Um, you know, thankfully I had tons of support from people at Yale. You know, the dean of Yale College, my colleague Marvin Chun, was just amazing, both in terms of helping me to get resources with it and making sure we had enough teaching assistance. And just the press office was amazing in terms of helping to navigate all this kind of press that was coming in. But it was kind of a, it was a bit of a circus. Um but it was really, really fun. I mean, the the fantastic thing for me was, you know, kind of feeling vindicated of like, yes, these students don't want to be depressed and anxious. They actually want to feel better and they want strategies that they can use to feel better. It's just, you know, they didn't have them. And so I think one of the reasons the class got so big was that the students were just voting with their feet. You know, they don't want to feel yucky and stressed and anxious all the time. And and I think they really resonated with this idea of a scientific approach to that. Like, what, what does science really say about the things you can do to feel better? Mm-hmm. So of everything that you taught in that class, and obviously I'm sure this is anecdotal, you know, what you heard worked for people. Was there either a favorite thing for you to teach or a a concept or one of those rewiring exercises that you feel like really, really resonated and landed with students? Um, I think different students kind of resonated with different things. Again, as I said, we don't, we sadly didn't get good data. We were able to do that uh, later in the online version of the class that we teach. So we kind of do have some results that teaching these things really does affect people and does really improve well-being. So that's good news. Uh, but for the students, I had to kind of re- rely on their anecdotal reports. And I think it kind of varied. I mean, the research suggests that, you know, overall, these kinds of practices, things like you know, taking time for gratitude, meditating, you know, uh, doing nice acts of kindness for others, making social connections, these things on average improve people's well-being. But there's some nuance around the edges, like some things will work better for some people than others. And that could just be due to individual differences. You know, some people might resonate more with gratitude than others. It might also be what you're doing naturally, you know, so if you're a really grateful person, then adding more gratitude in might not, you know, help that much, right, because you're kind of already doing it. And so it was sort of natural to expect that students would get certain things out of some stuff and not others. Um, But the things I heard that students really stuck with that really kind of did change things for themselves were um, a lot of students who kind of started a, a rich meditation program as part of the class, you know, like really started meditating every day and kept up that habit. You know, they've, they would tell me that that was a sort of transformative change in their life, right? Where they were really taking time to be mindful and kind of thinking about what really mattered uh, in their life. And that, that, especially at really stressful times, was, you know, a kind of thing that they would go back to that was kind of grounding for them. Mm-hmm. 
some students really did resonate with the gratitude practice. And I think, you know, they would say things like, you know, on this campus, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, pressure to kind of complain about things, you know, like not count your blessings, but count your hassles. You know, they, they have this uh, meme page on their Facebook page. So students make all these memes, which if your listeners are on the older side or not like connected to, to, you know, teenagers these days are like, you know, these little kind of like pictures that kind of make jokes about things that they kind of edit in Photoshop and stuff. And this is like a big kind of thing on college campuses right now is making lots of memes. But most of the time, the memes are like complaining memes. You know, they complain about the dining hall or they complain about the like student shuttle or they complain about, you know, the wait time for their printing. You know, it's, it's like complain, complain, complain. And so sometimes students would say, you know, it's really kind of countercultural to push feeling grateful, right, to like be counting your blessings rather than kind of complaining. Um, you know, even I think just in this day and age in politics and things, it's like we kind of get into the habit of complaining and that's what our what fills our social media feed. So the idea that you would take time to like count your blessings and think about the things that are going well and think about the things you're grateful for felt like a huge step for them. But a lot of the students who self-reported doing that seem to see, you know, real changes that, you know, one of them mentioned that, you know, like in midterm time when things were getting really stressed, she just had this practice of like, you know, okay, what, what, what are the things that are going well? And what she would always come back to is like her parents, who she was really close to, she's like, well, they're still here and I can still call them. And she's like, and in the scheme of things, when you think about it, like the midterms are like small potatoes when it comes to like, you know, how important it is to like have my parents there and just feel lucky for that. And so it seems like even in times of stress, students can use that technique to kind of feel grounded and just get a sense of like what matters in life, you know, just kind of put things into perspective. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to dig into some of the specifics of this. And so I guess maybe backing up a little bit, and this is probably a broad question, I guess, so feel free to take this in whatever direction you want. I know that one of the elements of what you're doing in your work and specifically with the new podcast is exploring myths about what makes us happy. And I, I assume that has to do with also kind of the the disconnect between maybe what we think is going to make us happy and then what actually does. And I'm I'm really interested if there's anything kind of to, to dive off that you want to share about kind of what science says in terms of how we're getting it wrong. Yeah, I think this is the biggest insight that comes from the science and maybe one of the most shocking ones, right? Because you know, our bodies are built to like seek out pleasure and avoid pain, right? You know, that's like, you know, pretty much the basis of evolution. And so you'd think that our minds would be pretty good at seeking out the stuff that really is going to give us pleasure, that's going to ultimately make us happier, right? Um, and we definitely have motivational systems that feel like they're doing that. You know, when you think about like which job you're going to pick or what you want to do on a Saturday night, like often you're doing that calculation in terms of like what you think is going to give you the most joy or the most pleasure or the most positive emotion or something, the problem is that a lot of those motivational mechanisms seem to be doing it wrong. In other words, we have these mechanisms that like make us really motivated to seek certain things out. Like we really strive for them and work at it when the things we're seeking out aren't going to deliver us happiness in the long run. And then we also seem to lack motivational mechanisms to seek out stuff that really will work, right? So we don't necessarily have you know, part of our brain that's telling us like, hey, I should sit down and think about what I'm grateful for right now. Or like, I really, really want to meditate. Like I'm craving meditation. Like I may be craving like a good cup of coffee or a cupcake or something like that. Like we just don't have mechanisms that cause us to seek out the stuff that really will make us feel better. And this is kind of a problem. It means lots of us feel like we're working hard towards our happiness. You know, it's not like we're, you know, sitting on our butt, not doing anything. Like, you know, we're striving in our careers, we're working hard in our families, we're working towards, 
you know, different accolades and partnerships. We're trying to buy stuff, you know, kind of fill our lives with material possessions that work. We're doing all this stuff and we just feel like something's not working. Like it's like something hasn't clicked. And there's a reason something hasn't clicked, which is that we're going after the wrong stuff and we're going after the wrong stuff often at an opportunity cost of the stuff that really is going to make us feel better. And I think one of the things I see on college campuses is this sort of thing writ large. You know, it plays out in a slightly different way that it might play out for adults. But, you know, think of my my Yale students who, you know, have spent their probably a lot of their high school career worrying a lot about their grades, worrying a lot about which college they're going to get into, often at the expense of things like spending time with friends, sleep, you know, having time to exercise, having time to be mindful. And then they get into this fantastic, you know, Ivy League institution. It's good for a few seconds, but then they get there and they're immediately back on the rat race, you know, immediately chasing after grades, chasing after the kinds of like, you know, ticks on their resume that will get them the perfect job. And it's never going to giving them time to be in the moment. Uh, And they're doing that at an opportunity cost of making friends, having time to just be social and these kinds of things. And so the, I think one of the reasons we're seeing such a big mental health crisis on college campuses, among others, because there's a lot going on there. But one of the reasons is that, you know, students are putting an incredible amount of time into certain activities, assuming that it's going to bring them a kind of, you know, life satisfaction or pleasure or good positive mood. And it's just not working in the way we think. They're kind of going after the wrong stuff. Yeah, I remember reading uh, a, a little quick anecdote that you had shared. Um, I, I, it was in one of the articles that I read about your work where this idea of uh, striving for high grades, you know, is potentially making us unhappy. And I think you had joked at the beginning of the course or beginning of a lecture, like, so therefore I'm going to give everyone D's and everybody freaked out. Will you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, well, that was pretty funny. Um, it was, uh, you know, I think it was one of these things of like, I actually used a meme. I try to use memes in class because the students sort of resonate with them so much. And so because there was so many students in the class and so so much of the talk on campus, the semester I taught the class was about the class because, you know, one out of every four students were taking it. You know, we had lots of memes on the Yale meme page. Um, and, you know, I was saying that, you know, one of the things that we learned from the science is that the grades don't matter for happiness as much as we think. Actually, if anything, uh, good grades seem to make people unhappy. So in high school, the students who have some of the best grades actually have some of the lowest levels of well-being. So students who, who make the best grades have the lowest levels of well-being, the lowest levels of self-esteem, um, and the lowest levels of optimism. So, you know, good grades aren't doing kind of what I think a lot of parents think. And so I, you know, showed them those data and stuff. And then someone on the the Facebook meme page at Yale uh, made a meme that was kind of, they used the movie The Matrix. So it's kind of like, you know, taking the red pill kind of thing from the movie The Matrix. And they said, you know, what if like, you know, Professor Santos is going to give us, you know, the red pill, she's going to give us all a D to like, you know, teach us that grades don't matter, right? Um, and so I actually took a screenshot of that meme and kind of put it up there, like clearly as a joke. It was like clearly a student had made this joke on the, you know, student Facebook page and so on. But that night, uh, administrators across campus got several calls, not from students, mind you, but from parents who were worried that I was really going to give all the students in the class a D to teach them a point. And of course, I think like the fact that not only were students freaking out, but that parents were freaking out and bought into this, I think kind of made my point. <laughs> and yeah. so I had to issue this email that was like, you know, I'm not going to give you all these. And also, you know, the fact that your parents who are miles away from here are stressed out about the possibility that a professor might give you a D when in fact it actually doesn't matter for your future and it doesn't matter for your happiness, kind of proving my point. And so 
in, in some ways, this gets to kind of a larger issue with the class and what these teachings were doing on campus, which was that a lot of this stuff is really like subversive, right? You know, I'm basically teaching Yale students a class that tells them that grades don't matter and that they should stop focusing on them. And like, this is at Yale where like the whole, you know, point of them getting here was the fact that they got like, you know, perfect grades in middle school and high school. And so there was this kind of interesting tension to navigate where on the one hand, you know, I'm sort of preaching something that's incredibly countercultural in terms of what the values traditionally are at, at a place like Yale. But I'm also doing it in the structure of like a Yale class, right? Like I was going to issue students grades. You know, one of the reasons I wasn't going to give them Ds is that, you know, they were going to take midterms and I had to give them the grade that reflected their performance. But then that also kind of meant that I was playing into this system that, you know, all the science suggests is kind of yucky and is not delivering to students the kind of well-being that we might hope for a system like this. So there was like some kind of deep ironies there, which is interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you're speaking about this because that was one of the things that I was thinking about, um, both as you were talking and then before we had this conversation of if it's the structure of the system itself that's causing so many of the problems. And obviously we're talking about it in terms of, you know, elite education and happiness, but this thing can be extrapolated out Mm -hmm. to a lot of different things. Like if the system itself is potentially the problem, and yet we sort of have to buy into this system if we want to succeed, like there is something in that of, okay, now what? Because I don't think you're suggesting the answer is just everybody get terrible grades and don't graduate, right? It's like an interesting thing. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's tricky because on the one hand, you know, we're we're clearly doing something wrong, right? Like we wouldn't have, you know, two thirds of our college students overwhelmingly anxious and almost half of them too depressed to function if, you know, everything was hunky-dory and everything was going perfectly. So somehow the system seems, there's something up, right? Um, I don't think that the answer is that, you know, everybody turns into like a hippie and goes surfing, right? I think there's still a place for learning and there's still a place for colleges and these kinds of things. I just think we have to get the balance better. Like somehow students have become so focused on grades and these sort of external rewards that that seems like there's all there is. And I think we're moving away from the kind of values that we started with this, which is, you know, college is about learning. College is about trying new things. College is about having the mental space to explore and make new friends and make connections. And that just doesn't always feel like what it feels like on campuses right now. It feels like uh, students are kind of, you know, ticking off what they need to do to kind of build up their resume to immediately go off and get some job in finance. And it's like, like, ah, like that's, that's not what this was for. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting to hear you say that this has gotten worse, right. In the last decade, or maybe that's just what the data shows. Like, I think I graduated from NYU in 2006 and a lot of what you're describing, you know, like the huge grade pressure, the, you know, even on the experimentation side, like I didn't really try anything. It was like, get through school, like as quickly as possible with as high of grades as possible, like to move on to the next thing. Right. And I have a lot of kind of sadness and regret about that. So even what you're saying the students are going through now is very relatable. That's funny because I, so I'm a little older, right? So I graduated in the in college in 97. So it's like, we're kind of like seeing different decades here in our conversation, right? And we definitely had that kind of more in high school. You know, I worked really hard. I went to Harvard for undergrad and worked really hard to get there in high school. But it was kind of like, once you got there, it was like, whew, you know, like that, that was what I worked hard for. Like now let me enjoy the fruits of my labor. And I think what's happened over time is that this kind of like the the rat race and where the carrot is at the end has kind of been extending, you know, to the point that, you know, a decade after I went to school, 
you know, you kind of, you have you going to NYU where you're like, oh my God, just like get through school as quickly as possible. But then kind of a quick reflection after that, like, wait, hang on, like, what did I just miss? Like, why was I doing that? Whereas the students now, I think are, you know, if, if this is like a kind of continuum that's kind of been getting worse and worse over time for our young people, in some ways we're seeing what I, what I hope is, is the worst of it, although you know, this isn't, unless we change the system, this isn't really going away, right? Uh, you know, the, the students are this depressed and this anxious in part because they're coming in that way. Like those levels of anxiety and depression I was just talking about, we're starting to see in high school students, even in middle school students, you know, this is why we're seeing things like suicides in elementary school age children and middle school age children. Like somehow this rat race has kind of gotten earlier and earlier and it doesn't end. And so, yeah. And so I think that it's kind of scary. You know, one thing I ask my students that kind of gives them pause, I often say, you know, think about the amount of homework you have and the stress that you have in college. Like, do you think your, your kids are going to have more stress or less stress? You know, and they're kind of like, oh my God, more, like it's only going to get like more competitive and more scary. And, you know, that kind of really freaks them out because it's like, it almost feels like we're part of this sort of nuclear arms race of, you know, perfect grades and perfect resumes and things that have just been getting worse and worse over time. And there ultimately, there has to be some breaking point. And it might be that what we're seeing is the breaking point psychologically. Like you just, you can't live with that much anxiety and fear. Like, you know, something has to give. Yeah. Well, I mean, so this makes me want to kind of circle back and ask about your podcast, because from my understanding and from um, kind of the previews that I was able to listen to, which were great, and I'm excited to hear the full show, it's not student focused, right? That's right. It's really, you know, thinking about how these principles that I want to teach my students about can be applied in everyone's daily life. Um, and so, you know, because again, you know, the the science isn't necessarily about college students, like, you know, it's about what well, all of us can be doing to feel a little bit better. And that was kind of what I learned from some of the press that came afterwards. You know, again, this this whole thing started because I was so worried about my students in my residential college and wanted to help them. But what happened was that when the press started coming out, the rhetoric in, in the newspaper articles and on the TV was kind of like, you know, like a 1200 Yale students go out to take a class on happiness. And what was funny was that the rhetoric was like, not about the students, but about everybody else. It was like, wait a minute, but these students are like 19 and they're at Yale University. Like they, they've kind of hit the life lottery. Like, what do they have to worry about? Like, what about the rest of us? Like, give us the tips. Like, we're the ones who need them. <laughs> And so, uh, so the kind of press made me realize like, oh, like lots of us are feeling like we're not flourishing. Like lots of us are feeling like we're working really hard at this and it is still not working. Like something's not falling into place. And I think a lot of us feel that way because, you know, our minds are not giving us the path that we need. Like we really need the science to put us, to point us in the right direction to say, hang on, like, you know, we're not seeking this stuff out, but we need to build things like gratitude and mindfulness, we need to build that stuff into our lives. Because if we don't, we're going to be kind of putting all our effort into exactly the wrong path. Mm -hmm. And so that was why we designed the podcast for everyone. But but the way the podcast works is that um, each episode is really focused on kind of a different lie that your mind gives you about what can make you happy. Um, just like a different, very practical, thing that you can do to improve your well-being over time. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to get into some more detail about that. And, you know, this idea of like the different lies that your mind tells you or, you know, different myths or things that we think. And, and a place that I would love to start is the oh so common question of whether a new job or relationship will make us happy. Will you mm -hmm. talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one that, you know, many of us think. We think like, oh, I'm not happy now, but, you know, if I just get that new job, I'll be happy, or if I lose 30 pounds, I'll be happy, or if I move to that new place that I've been fantasizing about, I'll be happy. Um, we often put our happiness and well-being in our life circumstances, right, where we live what job we have and so on. And that feels really striking, right? Like our intuitions about that are really strong. That, oh, if I could just change this, I'd be happy. And it is true that sometimes when you make those changes, you get happier, but only for a little while and much less often, I mean, much less happy than you think. Um, and so this is a standard cognitive bias that researchers call impact bias. The idea is that the impact of the things that happen to us have less of, effect, less of an effect on our happiness than we often think. You know, so we think like, oh, if I, you know, say I hit the lottery, you know, some big life change that we, you know, many of us want, right? If I hit the lottery, I'll be really happy. Yeah, you'll be probably happy, but not as happy as you think. Like it's not going to be as big of a jump of your happiness as you think. And it definitely won't last as long as you think. And it's also the case that when we simulate what different events are going to feel like, we often don't take into account some of the features that really do matter for happiness, ones that like, you know, take us in a different direction. So the lottery example is a great case in point. You know, many of us like play the lottery or, you know, fan, even if we don't play the lottery, we sometimes say like, oh, if I hit the lottery, you know, I'd like move into a huge mansion and like, you know, sit in my big bathtub with a bunch of money and like it would just feel amazing. But in practice, when you look at people who really have won the lottery, what you find is that they're often not that happy. In fact, many of them get miserable. In fact, like suicide among lottery winners is much higher than you might expect, kind of given how, how happy we expect them to be. And in the podcast, uh, in one episode, we get to look at this really closely. I interviewed this guy, Clay Cockrell, uh, who's a psychotherapist for the insanely wealthy. You know, so all his clients like earn more than $50 million. And your first question might be like, okay, they have $50 million. Like, why do they need a psychotherapist? But what you find when you talk to Clay is that many of these folks need psychotherapists because they're actively miserable. You know, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're often incredibly lonely. Um, you know, Clay points out that the 1% is the 1% for a reason, right? Like, you just can't relate to anybody when you have that kind of money. And he also points out that they, they have a challenge that the rest of us don't have because, you know, when some of us and some of your listeners are kind of feeling miserable, we can fantasize about what things would be like if we had tons of money, you know, like, oh, I'm so miserable now, but, you know, if I had $50 million, everything would be great. But then, these folks have $50 million. So they know that can't be it. So it's kind of like, I'm rich, but like I'm miserable. And so that comes with kind of, you know, some kind of cognitive dissonance and some like, you know, kind of guilt about it and so on. And so it's just one example. But the main point is this idea that we often think our circumstances are, once we change them, that's when everything's going to get great. And that can be, and if that's wrong, that's problematic because many of us throw tons and tons of work into changing our circumstances, right? You know, from diets to kind of working incredibly hard to move to a new place to like, you know, brushing up on our resume and thinking we have to have to change our job. And again, sometimes those things are needed, but the point is that they're not going to have the change in our happiness levels that we often think. Yeah. I remember a couple of years back, I read some of the more popular kind of 
science of happiness books. And please correct me if I'm misremembering this, but when it was talking about the money happiness question, I think it said, I think it was $75,000 was the point at which like continuing to earn, you know, if you earn, if you go from 30,000 to 50,000 or, you know, 50,000 to 70,000 in terms of your um, income, that it has a positive, like a, a noticeable impact. And then after that, it doesn't, is that what the science is still showing? Yeah, this is a very famous study by uh, two Nobel Prize winning psychologists, Danny Kahneman and Angus Deaton. And they tried to look at that. They did this thing where they said, okay, let's just track a bunch of different measures of well-being, like from your positive emotion to your levels of stress. And we'll sort of see how those go up uh, or sorry, see how those like indicators of well-being change as different wealth levels change. And what they found is kind of exactly what you said, which is that at low incomes in the United States right now, it is the case if you get more money that you improve your well-being. You know, So if you're only earning $10,000 in the U.S. right now and you double your salary, yeah, you're going to feel less stressed. You know, like, yeah, you're going to be able to do more things. You're going to have more positive emotion and so on. But that only works up until a point. You know, once you have food on the table, once you have a stable roof over your head, you're not going to get the same kind of increase in happiness or an increase in your salary. And their estimate where there's like some wiggle room around it, but their estimate is that at about 75K in the U.S. right now, like you're not going to really increase your well-being if you improve your salary. And, and, and what's striking is that that means even if you like double or triple your salary, you're not going to get a corresponding increase in your well-being. And that is definitely something that we don't expect. You know, many of us who are earning, you know, around that level are picking our job depending on what salary we're going to get. You know, we're like, oh, well, that job's going to pay me, you know, $10,000 more a year. I'm going to take that one. And like, it's not going to matter for our well-being in some ways at all. Right. And so I think this is just another domain where these lies of our mind are causing us to make not necessarily bad decisions. I mean, in some cases, bad decisions, but in some cases, you know, it's causing us to stress over decisions that ultimately just aren't going to matter for our happiness in any way that we think. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so following this thread of myths or the lies of our mind a little further, something else that I wanted to ask you about is the link or not between happiness and choice, right? Like unlimited choice, having more choices, having fewer choices. How does that play into happiness? Yeah, well, this is another spot where we have these incredibly strong intuitions. You know, if I asked most of your listeners, would you rather have like just, you know, a, a few choices or lots of choices, you know, which would you rather? Most people would go with more choices, right? Like, do you want a Netflix that has as many movies as we can get on Netflix? Or do you want a Netflix with like four shows? Like, you know, are you going to pay the same amount of money? Well, people would say, no, I want Netflix with, you know, like different comedies and all these different things, right? Um, that's the intuition we have. We think that kind of happiness comes from freedom of choice. And it's, you know, that is true to a certain extent, just like with money, that's true to a certain extent. Like you don't want no choices. You don't want to be kind of forced into who you're going to marry or what movie you have to watch on Netflix or what kind of coffee you get at Starbucks. But sometimes we take it to such an extreme that we can have so much choice that it's affecting us in negative ways. And this is what researchers call choice overload, the kind of exhaustion that we get from having too many choices. You know, so take the Netflix example. Um, you know, some of you might experience the same thing I do, which is like, you're like, okay, I want to watch a movie on Netflix. This is great that I have so many choices. You plunk down, you know, you start streaming through the list and then 45 minutes goes by and you're still like streaming through the list and you're near, you know, at least if you're like me and my husband is like, well, do you want to watch that one? I don't know. And, and two things happen. One is that 
our brains can't deal with that much choice, right? It's just exhausting. Like we can't kind of think about all the different options, like, you know, like kind of decide like, you know, well, which one's going to be funnier and which one's going to be, you know, better worth of my time, like whatever criteria you're using for choice, like there's just too much of it to kind of compare across like so many examples that we get on say Netflix or say Starbucks or, you know, in any modern from clothing shopping, like in any modern domain, they're just like, too many different features to choose on. And that has two consequences. One is it makes us exhausted, right? We're just kind of tired afterwards um, to the point that we often opt out of the choice. You know, that's kind of my Netflix pattern where it's like, and then I'm like, you know what? I didn't really want to watch anything anyway. It's like too much, right? <laughs> or you um, rewatch the same thing. That's yeah, I'm like, like, oh, I guess I'm just going to watch Heart of Dixie again. Again, you know, exactly. Um, so, so, so one is you opt out of the choice completely. But the second is that even when you make a choice, you're so convinced that there was some other option out there that was better, you end up not really enjoying what you get. And I can kind of experience this too, that like, you know, I'll finally like sit down and watch a documentary that's perfectly fine, but I'm like, "Mm, maybe we should have watched this other thing, right? And like, and if you didn't have that many choices, you kind of wouldn't experience that. And so what it means is that more choices sometimes make us more exhausted less satisfied and sometimes even unable to make a choice because we kind of opt out of doing it. And so what's ironic is that we are the ones who end up giving ourselves so many choices. You know, if you think of the choices we face in life, you know, even for kind of simple, stupid decisions, like, you know, what, what coffee to get in the morning, you know, like, you know, 20 years ago, there was just like coffee, you know, maybe you get coffee, milk or sugar, right? Like that was the choice. But now it's like, you know, a venti soy latte, like with no foam. And like, it's like, there's like infinite choice. I think someone calculated that at Starbucks, there's over 80,000 different options ultimately. And that's not including the like crazy holiday ones that, you know, it's September now when we're having this conversation, I think the pumpkin spice lattes are coming out, right? So we're going to have all our holiday kind of choices too. And so um, we just don't realize what all this choice is doing to us. And it might be making us more exhausted than we often think. Yeah, that makes complete sense. You know, just using the Netflix example, I can very much relate to that. So my question for you personally is, what do you do in like, how do you handle the fact that what all of what you just said is true, right? Because the I guess we're just going to keep following either the Netflix or the Starbucks example, the Starbucks menu is going to be what it is, right? And like the number of things that are on Netflix are on Netflix, like probably. So how do you like, you as an individual person knowing what you know about the science, like, oh, this is making me exhausted. This is making me less happy. Like, how do you either alter your behavior or something within that? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. I mean, my guess is like some of your listeners out there are like architects of choice. You know, they probably work in businesses where you can give people infinite choice or less choice. And what you find is that sometimes reducing people's choices actually makes them happier, like happier than you think. Um, and I've done this in a couple different domains now. I'm thinking about, you know, different kinds of like, so there, there are whole companies that kind of try to help you out by limiting your choice, right? Um, so not to like, you know, talk about specific products, but, you know, I've d- just been part of a few of these kinds of like, you know, clothing programs where you sort of tell people your preferences and they just like send you five items of clothing. And like, I don't have to go to the store and pick between them. Like somebody's picked for me, right? And generally that kind of feels pretty nice. You know, they don't always get it perfectly right, but it's like kind of decreasing the choice overload for you. Um, I think in the Netflix example, sometimes it's you know, really trying to think ahead of time so that you give yourself some boundary conditions on that choice. You know, my husband and I would be like, 
we're only going to watch a documentary and it has to be under 20 minutes. Like we try to like forcibly limit our own choices so that we're not so exhausted. Um, and one of the ways we do it is like my husband and I, like I'll, you know, I'll look through and kind of just pick two things and give him the choice of just those two. You know, Mm -hmm. we can watch stranger things or we can watch umbrella Academy, like you pick, you know? And so what you're trying to do is to kind of find ways to reduce your own choices. And, you know, one of the things that's been super fun about the podcast is that, you know, we talk about the science on the podcast, but the, the another great reason that the podcast was so fun was that the podcast really allowed me to find people who were doing it right. You know, the goal is like, all right, here's what the science says you can do. Who are people out there who are getting this right? And one of the inspirations for the episode we did on choice um, was this woman, Courtney Carver, who uh, has kind of decided to just simplify her life in terms of reducing her choices. And she did that in a number of different domains, but she particularly did that in the domain of clothing, which is one for women that can be, you know, really exhausting. Like, you know, I even felt that, you know, honestly, this morning where it's like, you know, you get out of the shower, you open the wardrobe and you're just like, ugh, you know, like we're in a kind of changing seasons. And I'm just like looking at all the options and I'm like, is it going to be warm today? Is it going to be cold? Like, what am I going to wear? And honestly, I just went back to like, you know, my like tried and true dress that I wear like way too often. <laughs> like, you know, like, like my students are probably like, she wears that dress like literally every week. Like, why is she wearing it again? Um, but what Courtney came up with is like, that's a way to reduce our choice. You know, like we need to have all our wits about us on the job. We don't need to be kind of cognitively exhausted by the time we get there, you know, after we leave our wardrobe in the morning. Right. So what can you do to kind of reduce your clothing choices? And she started a project that she calls um, Project 333, which is uh, three months of just 33 items of clothing. And so you just kind of throw all the stuff in the box. You keep only 33 items. And her idea there is that like what you're doing is that you're reducing your choice, right? In the morning, it's not like so many options that it feels overwhelming. You just have a couple of good tried and true ones that you go to, and it can kind of keep you like a little less exhausted. And what she points out is like a lot of kind of smart folks have done this, you know, like President Obama, like Steve Jobs, like they all kind of wore the same thing over and over again. And the reason they did that was that you know, get rid of the choice overload you feel for your wardrobe in the morning, and then you can save it for the choices that kind of matter a lot more in life than, you know, what color blouse you wore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying makes me think just how important it is to be strategic about these kind of things, because maybe for someone, you know, getting dressed with lots of options brings them lots of joy if there's someone where that's true for, but I'm sure there's somewhere else in their life where maybe, you know, pre-making a decision, having a uniform, so to speak, in another area of life would be really helpful. And this idea of like, uh, when you were talking about with Netflix, you know, we're, we want a documentary. It has to be under 20 minutes. I think a lot about the benefits of having like preset criteria for myself with something like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm looking for, you know, something that meets X, Y, Z, right? And then as soon as it does, like I think about that, um, I recently had to buy airplane tickets and it was like, okay, you know, I want ideally, you know, not have to get up at three in the morning, right? So it's like not leaving before mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. time, not spending more than this much money. And then like whatever flight meets that criteria, I'm just going to do that one and not endlessly look for something that might be better. Yeah, I think that that it's kind of like setting your own limits in whatever way, you know, like the Courtney, who we talked to on the podcast, you know, that's pretty extreme for some people of just like kind of getting rid of a lot of your clothes. 
But, you know, there's just some domains in which you can do it. The point is that we just don't need that much choice all the time. And we can all find ways to kind of knock it down, not necessarily in the domain where you really like choice. You know, I mean, some people, you know, use this, the coffee example, like some people might like to switch it up or like be really happy to try out the holiday seasonals. And like, that's great. The, the trouble comes when what you're choosing between is exhausting you and you need to give yourself some kind of cognitive space. Yeah. It's become a joke with some friends that being an adult is basically just like asking each other what you want to have for dinner. Like, what do you want? What do you feel like having over and over again until you die? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so one of the other topics that I was really interested in talking to you about is um, technology and well-being. And I think that that could go in a couple of different areas, you know, whether it's social media or sort of the gamification and, you know, fitness trackers, like that type of stuff, or even as much as like, banking, shopping, ordering food, like we do so much stuff online or via tech. And I'm really interested in anything that you want to share about the links between kind of tech and well-being and if there are ways intentionally to change our behaviors around that to improve well-being. Yeah, well, this is a topic that comes up in a bunch of our podcast episodes. I think, you know, because this is something that's changing in our life, you know, like we've put cell phones and that allow us to do amazing things that, you know, no one in the history of our species has been able to do, but we don't really know the cost of these kinds of technologies for our happiness. And there could be costs in a couple different domains. And so one of those domains that we look at a lot on the podcast is the cost of tech is the cost that technology has on our social connection. Um, you know, I just, how much we're talking to people in real life. Um, so of course, you know, some of our technology can really help us talk, you know, like we right now are talking over Skype and we wouldn't be able to do that with you in the UK and me in Connecticut. Like we just wouldn't be able to do that without technology. We'd have to scream really loud. Um, you know, so in some ways technology can give us tools for connection, but all too often the technology we have, uh, we end up using it in ways that limit the connection we have in real life with people. Um, you know, I think just think how many times you've been like, you know, standing in line or on a plane or something where you're like, you know, focused on, you know, your phone and scrolling through some Instagram feed and not talking to the actual people around you. You know, I think of this even, you know, at dinner with my husband where I'd like to think that we're always present, but, you know, like occasionally there's like a bing and then I'm like, oh, I pull out my phone and then, you know, I'm two seconds in and he's pulled out his phone and then, you know, therefore dinner conversation just like goes away. Right. And so we wanted to really look at kind of like where this started and, and, uh, and doing so in the podcast, we get to do a really fun thing, which is to talk to um, one of the inventors of one of the first technologies that started to break up human connection, which in the podcast, I argue was the ATM, you know, not something we think of as like, you know, disruptive technology. Um, but the ATM, you know, built back, you know, a couple decades ago, where before the ATM, you used to have to walk into the bank office, you know, stand in line with other people in real life and talk to a human teller to get your money out. Like that was just how it worked. But nowadays you can just walk up to a machine, not talk to anyone and you get your money that way. And the question is like, what's the consequence of that? And what we kind of explore in the podcast is that one of the consequences of that is that with ATMs and all kinds of technologies from Uber to kind of self cash registers and these kinds of things is that we end up talking to people less in our real life than we used to, just like strangers and kind of, you know, situations where we're just going around and doing commerce and things. And we're, we don't really know the consequence of that, but there's lots of research suggesting that it's promoting things like loneliness. You know, it's making us kind of less happy than we might think. And so we're kind of finding that, you know, some hints suggest that technology might be taking a hit on our social connection 
in more ways than we often really expect. That's interesting. So when you learn about that and when you hear that, what does that mean for you? Like I'm, I'm kind of continually interested in like the next step of like, okay, so yeah. that's true. Then what does that mean for like Lori, the person? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, one move could be like, like, Lori never goes to the ATM. She always goes to the teller. In practice, super not true. <laughs> I can still go to the ATM rather than going to the bank branch office. It might be when I'm going to the ATM, the bank branches are not always open. Um, but what I think what it means for me is to make sure that I'm getting my in real life social connection in other ways, right? Like it's to realize that, you know, certain features of our social connectedness in daily life have been eroding because of technology. And what can I do to put that back in? And part of that is really having good attentional hygiene when it comes to tech stuff, right? Um, and I'm naturally very, very bad at this. Like, I would be the kind of person who, like, you know, has my phone out at the dinner table. I'm, like, very addicted to my email. Like, and I've tried to get better about having those things far away so that the the technology we have around is not messing with our in real life social connections, um, because the data on that are actually really scary. This is some work um, coming out of the lab of Liz Dunn, who's a pre- who's a professor at the University of British Columbia, and she's done all this crazy work looking at what the mere presence of cell phones kind of does to our social connection. And so she finds that like not even if you're on the phone, but the mere presence of a phone can actually reduce your enjoyment of a dinner that you're having with other people. Um, like just if I just have you rate, like how delicious was this dinner? How much were you paying attention to it? You just pay attention to it less if your phone is out in a place that you can see it, even if you're not using it. Um, she also finds that if you have your phone out, again, even if you're not really using it, you actually smile less at the people around you, like say in like a waiting room situation. So you're in the doctor's waiting room, you know, there are other people around you, you might you know, have a casual conversation with them or at least kind of smile at the people who are around you and acknowledge like there are other humans like in the room with you. But what she finds is that uh, the more we are have our phones around us, the less we're likely to do that. In fact, she finds like 30% reduction in smiling when we have our phones out. And so, you know, her claim is that, you know, somehow technology is kind of grabbing our attention in a way that might be reducing our enjoyment in subtle and automatic ways that we don't even realize. And that means that if we want to counter the effects of that stuff, we need to put conversation and just kind of in real life social connection back in to kind of replace the stuff we might be losing without realizing it from having our tech around us all the time. And that means, you know, for better or for worse, like unplugging every once in a while, you know, taking the headphones out every once in a while, which I know is odd for like a podcaster to say, like, like keep them in and like listen to every episode. But, you know, occasionally they have to come out so that we can have some in real life social connection with people. You know, you want to take the headphones out so you can talk to somebody about what you learned on the podcast and really make a connection that way. That statistic about like the reduction in smiling, like that's wild. And you, you know, and on one hand, it's like, how can that be true? But then you think about it and you're like, of course, right? Like when I have my phone out in a waiting room, I'm just simply not looking at other people, you know? So if somebody's kind of making a casual little smirky eye contact at me, you know, just like not in a, you know, gross, creepy way, but you know, just like, you know, you're a normal human in a room with another person, like you make eye contact, like you just don't do it as much, right? Because you're just simply not paying attention to them. And so in, in one episode uh, with Liz, we really talk about this idea of, you know, what that means for our natural interaction. What are we missing? And the claim she makes is that, 
you know, we're kind of because technology is grabbing so much of our attention without realizing it, we're kind of just not paying attention to stuff in real life. Like that's what reduces the dinner enjoyment is that we're simply not being mindful of what we're eating and what we're paying attention to, what the room is like and so on. Like these cell phones are thieves of our attention much more so than we realize. And that's important too. It's not like social media. It's not like, oh, Facebook is bad. It's like literally the phone itself is stealing your attention and again, what does that mean? You know, if you think of the 30% reduction in smiling, you know, when we put phones in the pockets of 6 billion people, you know, kind of, you know, where, what have we done without realizing the consequences of it? It's kind of scary. Yeah, I've been thinking, I think about this more in the realm of social media, and it's something that's come up a bunch on on the show lately and in my community lately, of really putting tighter boundaries around that. And I think at first I felt... I don't know, maybe embarrassed or ashamed or sort of like, what's wrong with me that I need to put really tight boundaries around this or that I am experimenting with, you know, whole days off of social media because it kind of is this idea of or potentially a false belief of, you know, you should just be able to like not engage with it that much or that type of thing. And I, I don't know, more and more I'm thinking that that's not true and it feels empowering to have some stricter regulations with this stuff for myself, even if sometimes I'm like, mm, maybe I shouldn't need this, but I do. So I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, like, it, you know, you might think that the researcher who does the studies on this would be really kind of, you know, like down with cell phones, like, you know, go, go back to no technology, full Luddite. But, but Liz is actually really optimistic. She thinks, you know, what's going to happen is people are going to start realizing the effects of this stuff. And then they're going to start building in both their own controls, but also technology is going to be putting its own controls into itself to kind of help people. And, I, and, you know, I think we're seeing the the seeds of some of this too. You know, the new iPhones, for example, give you your amount of time that you're on the phone, right? Like they'll tell you, and I don't think anybody's ever looked at that, you know, the amount of time on the iPhone and thought, you know, I should be spending more time on my iPhone. <laughs> like everyone sees that and thinks, oh my God, like I'm putting this thing away. And so, and so she kind of hopes that technology will start like doing things to police itself, to giving us tools to kind of allow us to have the good parts of technology with less of the kind of bad stuff, less of the addictive stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, she's very hopeful about it. We had an interesting conversation on the podcast because I'm not sure I'm as hopeful, right? I worry that, you know, a lot of these companies, like they get revenue by getting our attentional time, right? Like they, they make money if we're paying attention to them, right? You know, it's not clear to me that the iPhone wants us to stay off the iPhone. So there's this kind of careful balance with, you know, they might be giving us these tools, but, you know, all things considered, like they want us to be on these devices more than not. Um, and so I think there's this interesting tension that, you know, we kind of still have to pay attention to and figure out how it's going to play out. Yeah, definitely. So you've mentioned a couple of things, you know, sort of unlimited technology, too much choice, over identifying with like new circumstances, that kind of stuff, like things that we think are going to work, but don't or, you know, things that maybe have a more negative impact on happiness and well being. Is there anything else like any other myths that you really wanted to talk about in that vein? Yeah, well, another big one is just this, uh, this kind of myth that we are our own agents. You sort of talked about it a little bit when we were talking about the phone stuff, right? This kind of like false sense of what we're protected from, you know, with the phones, it's kind of this false sense of like, oh, it's not really affecting me, like I can control it. But in practice, like, these things happen automatically, and we kind of can't control them in the way we think. Uh, Another domain, I think, where we think, you know, we have control is we think we're these independent 
think that, you know, my emotions are kind of protected from the emotions of other people around me. You know, for example, even on social media, right? Like, you know, this morning when I first woke up, I, you know, I took a quick scroll through my Twitter feed. You know, there's a lot of politics stuff on there. There's a lot of negative energy. And I like to think like, oh, that's just, you know, in my feed and I can walk away from that. But what the research is suggesting there is that that's not the case either, that we're much more affected by the emotions of other people than we realize, you know, to the point that it kind of hits us automatically. Like we don't even realize the extent to which other people's emotions are affecting us, but they really, really are. And I think that's another big one that, you know, we kind of had in the first season of the podcast because I really wanted to teach people about this, you know, in this day and age where we're constantly kind of putting ourselves in front of these feeds with a lot of negative energy, that means a lot of us are kind of unconsciously and automatically picking up the negativity that's out there without even realizing that we're doing it. And that's really dangerous because then that means we can start putting the negative energy out there ourselves, you know, when we don't necessarily want to do that um, in ways that we don't think. And so in one of our episodes, uh, which I think is called uh, like make them laugh, you know, we talk about this in the context of like simple ways we catch other people's emotions, like, you know, in a like cheesy TV laugh track or something like that, you know, like think Big Bang Theory, where there's this kind of crazy laugh track under it, we think, oh, that's just some silly TV technique. But it works because we just kind of catch other people's emotions. But that also works on Facebook, too. You know, that also works in my Twitter feed when there's a bunch of outrage about, you know, things that are legit to get outraged about. But, you know, maybe not at 6 a.m. when I first wake up and, you know, pull my phone out to, you know, take a peek at what's going on in the world. And so I think we need to get better, not just about our attentional hygiene, as we talked about, but our kind of emotional hygiene. Like, when are we going to want to let ourselves engage with that kind of emotion? And when do we really want to protect ourselves? And I think knowing how much those things can affect us uh, can really cause us to protect ourselves more than we might have done otherwise. Yeah, just that, I mean, what you're speaking to makes so much sense. And the acknowledgement that the emotional landscape of whatever it is that we're taking in or from other people is going to have an impact. It's like acknowledging that that's true almost to me feels like a permission slip to, it's not like not pay attention, obviously, because like you said, these things are important and the outrage is worth it, but maybe to time it differently or to go into it knowing like, oh, hey, this is something that might have an emotional effect on me, you know, just like more awareness around that. And like, I can definitely see how, uh, hey, let me set aside two hours to do this or, you know, whatever that winds up looking for each individual person, as opposed to just like the random bombardment of everyone else's, you know, wide range of emotions all the time. Yeah. And I think just knowing the consequences of it can be really powerful too, right? Uh, You know, a a friend of mine uh, who has kids was talking about this, that like, you know, she'll just like, you know, in in a moment of downtime when she's making dinner, like go online and just be on Twitter and just see a lot of this negativity, you know, and then her daughter will come in and like ask for, you know, like, I don't know, a glass of juice. And she's like, get out of here. You know, so it's like your emotions that you catch from this thing, like you're going to catch these emotions from some online feed, but those are going to be your emotions in real life when you're dealing with your family and your spouse and your coworkers and things. And so, you know, again, we, it's not to say to, that you'd never participate in them, but it's knowing that they're going to affect you in the same way as something else, you know, emotional, like you might not want to watch like you know, a really sad movie in the middle of the, your work day or like, you know, like really stressful, like angry documentary. Right. But the idea is like, we forget that, you know, a quick hop on a Twitter feed can make us feel that way. And so we kind of have to be careful about when we do it and knowing how it's really affecting us so that, you know, we don't bring that negative energy in. Um, another kind of a tip that from this episode is also that, 
you know, we can, when we realize how much other people's emotions are affecting us, it can kind of feel sad or sort of feel like we don't have agency and so on. But it also gives some really good news, which is that, you know, our posts can affect other people, you know, kind of, we can be the like positive feed we want to see in the world kind of thing. Right. Um, that means our own emotions can be contagious too. So, you know, if we take a step to put out there something that's a little bit more positive or something that's like less outraged or less negative, like that can affect other people as well. You know, I have this one uh, friend on Twitter who, who's like, you know, he does all kinds of stuff on Twitter, but he also posts like really funny dog videos, you know, which sounds, you know, and again, in this day and age where we need to worry about climate change and politics, like, you know, are we going to fill our feeds with dog videos? But you know, those dog videos sometimes can provide like an important like, you know, antidote to like all the other stuff that's happening in the world. And so I'm often really thankful. And I think, you know, this person is putting out these dog videos, they get hundreds of likes and, you know, that's contributing to people's positivity. And so it's important remembering that you can have an effect on other people's emotions too. And to take that responsibility seriously enough that you're only putting out their stuff you know, that, that you would want to be affecting other people's emotions. You're blowing my mind a little bit right now. This this <laughs> whole thing about, you know, like the emotions being contagious. It's funny because like, of course, it makes so much sense, right? Like you're not saying anything that I'm like, oh, my God, I would have never, ever thought that. That doesn't make sense at all, right? Like it's, it makes so much sense that I think it's often easy to overlook it. Like, I don't know. Obviously, I know that I'm a human and not a robot. And so, of course, other people's emotions and, you know, what they're putting out there are going to affect me. But I do think similarly to the phone example of you think, oh, I'll just check this really quick or, you know, then you wind up being on it for 45 minutes or that type of stuff that I think maybe what I'm getting from what you're saying is like we're more susceptible to impact from these things. And maybe we would want to believe that we are. And that's fine. As long as there's, like you said, awareness around that can be really empowering of like, okay, this is going to have an effect. This is going to impact me. So then like being able to make some, you know, better fit choices of when and how to engage with stuff. Yeah. And I think just also realizing that some of these kinds of things give you empowerment, right? In the sense that, you know, like with the phones, like you can, sh you can control your own attentional hygiene. Like I can leave it home today. Like I can just not bring it to dinner and the world won't end. Right. And we forget that we have that control. You know, same thing with some of this, uh, you know, so-called emotional contagion, both online and in real life, you know, we can put out there what we want to see out there. And I think, you know, this is can be powerful online, but it can have even more of a powerful effect uh, in the workplace. Um, one of the people we interview for this episode is a Wharton Business School professor, Seagal Barsade, and she does work on this phenomenon. She calls them affective spirals, this idea where you know, like you, you go into the workplace and you have one person, you know, in the office who's kind of like in a downer kind of mood. And then every time that person's around, the whole office gets in a kind of downer mood. Right. Um, and what she points out in the episode is that, you know, we often make fun of that person. You know, I feel like every office has that one person she calls it, in, I guess in her office, it was Megan. So she's like, every office has a Megan kind of thing. But we forget that we can be the Megan, right? Like without realizing it, you know, if like, you know, we spend all morning on Twitter and walk into the office, like now we're the Megan and we don't even notice it. And so she kind of points out that these affective spirals can really begin with anyone. And that means we have a responsibility to our colleagues and to our families and to our workplace cultures to like not be the Megan, to like forcibly change our emotions, because then that means we're going to have a positive effect on the people around us. But then it's a spiral, right? So if we put in a little work to kind of feel good ourselves, then other people catch that, but then they automatically feed it back to us. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. she kind of talks about how, you know, if you can seed it, 
then like other people will kind of give it back to you and kind of what work it takes to sort of start that spiral, you know, which can go in a really, you, you can make it go in a negative direction if you're not paying attention, but you can also just as easily, if you put the work in, make it go in a positive direction too. Yeah. Okay. So I guess like following that thread, let's talk about a few scientifically backed paths to happiness. What does work? Yeah. So, you know, we've mentioned a few of them so far, you know, the kinds of things I prescribe for my students. One of the big ones is social connection, right? Just simply having a conversation with a real human feels good, even though we don't often forecast it. Uh, true, it's also true for introverts. So uh, researchers who study the effects, the positive effects of conversation find that those effects are just as big for introverts and extroverts. It's just that introverts have a much stronger theory that it's not going to work. So they tend not to engage in it. Then, and the research suggests that kind of having, you know, deeper conversations matter more than we think, you know, so the next time you're at a cocktail party or, you know, just ha- kind of having a conversation with a stranger or someone you don't know that well, don't just talk about the weather, but like, try to get really deep, you know, ask like, you know, what don't you like about your job? You know, when was the last time you cried in front of someone? You know, like, you know, if you could, if, if you, there's one regret you have in your life, what is it? Right. People think like, whoa, those are like a little overshare. But it turns out that we actually enjoy getting deeper with someone more quickly than we often think. And so kind of deep questions are kind of more powerful. So that's the sort of social connection domain. I think the second tip we get from the happiness research is that you know, we often think of our well-being in terms of self-care. You know, there's this like Parks and Rec idea of like treat yourself. You know, we just get it on like pillows and things now like treat yourself. Um, and that also turns out to be kind of a little bit of a misnomer. Um, a lot of the work in happiness suggests that people are happiest when they're thinking about doing nice things for other people, when they're being a little bit more other oriented. You know, so people who donate the most to charity, uh, kind of controlled for income, tend to be happier. People who volunteer more, kind of controlled for their amount of free time, tend to be happier. And so the next time you're kind of in the mode of like, you know, you're in a bad mood, you want to do something for yourself, uh, think about doing whatever you are going to do for yourself for like somebody else. Um, you know, so I've done this sometimes when I'm like, oh my gosh, I need like a manicure or I need a massage or something. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pick somebody in my office who's had a really tough week and I'm going to like gift them a massage just like out of nowhere, just like leave it in their, you know, mailbox or something. And that again, seems crazy. It's like when you kind of predict, you're like, okay, I would rather enjoy the massage, than like give the massage to someone else. But like what the data suggests is it's just the opposite. These simple things that you do for other people tend to have a bigger impact on your happiness uh, than the stuff you do for yourself. Interesting. I mean, and I feel like, like anything else, the ends of the spectrum, right? Because I would imagine you're not saying that means put yourself last all the time and never take care of yourself, right? Like That doesn't seem like it would be great either. Yeah, it's, it's kind of how you take care of yourself because it, it's one of these things where we often think that, you know, what self-care looks like is like shut everyone out and like go into my bubble bath like all by myself. But like, actually, like, when you take time to think about what other people are going on, it's, it's a, it's kind of a way to count your blessings too. You know, I had this, um, you know, there, there are certain kind of administrative jobs in my department that are kind of a pain in the butt. And one is, um, what the, the person who has to like approve all the students courses, like, you know, you get lots of student questions and it's like really annoying. And at the beginning of the year, it can be really stressful. And I had that job, you know, and remember how stressful it was. Now I'm not in that position anymore. So someone else has the job. And often I kind of think it, you know, the time of year where it's really stressful, I could be thinking about my own stress. I could be like, you know what, that person is going through so much right now. Like, let me just do something nice for them, you know, like gift them a coffee or just something silly to kind of make them feel better. 
you know, that's an example where it's not like, it's not like I'm, you know, killing myself or causing myself like, you know, all this harm by not doing self care. Mm -hmm. I'm just getting out of my own headspace enough to realize like, hang on, the world is not just about me. Like, I don't actually have it that bad. You kind of experience some gratitude for your own position and you do something nice for someone else, which it turns out just feels good. And so I think, again, you know, it's not to say like, you know, kill yourself and never take any time for self-care, never take any time for you, but it's about how you do it. And sometimes, you know, kind of getting out of your own headspace and thinking about things that are beyond you can feel more meaningful and can actually make you happier than you expect. Yeah. I mean, and that goes back to what you were saying originally about um, kind of the ways our minds lie to us of what, you know, we think the impact is going to be on our happiness, right? Because I, I think the solo bubble bath example, and not to say that that doesn't feel good, but to think, you know, the only way for me to feel good and to care for myself is like this one path, right? And like just hearing some of the examples that you are giving that like, oh, there actually are other things and other things that might have more of an impact than we realize. Yeah. And another big one kind of in this domain, I think, of you know, again, like, like things that come up when I'm stressed is kind of the power of gratitude. Um, and this is one that I get wrong all the time. You know, when I am having a bag of weed at work, you know, what I want to do is sit down with a glass of wine with a girlfriend and just complain about everything, just kvetch about my job and like, you know, family problem, just like, you know, the whole nine yards. Right. But what the research shows is that that's not really the path to happiness that like, I'd be better off when I met my girlfriend for a glass of wine and she asked how it's going to be like, well, you know, honestly, it's going really good. Like, you know, I have my health, like, you know, like I love my husband, like you have this amazing job at Yale. Like we, we tend to think that it'll feel good to focus on the hassles, but that's actually a misnomer that like taking time to experience what you're grateful for and gratitude is actually better than you think. Again, not to kind of completely ignore the problems in the world, but to come at those problems from a place of like, you know, ultimately everything is going to be okay. And with that perspective, let me try to go off and solve stuff. And I think this is one that we as a generation are messing up, you know, like look at what people talk about, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. It's like often, you know, everything is bad in politics and everything is bad in the world and everything is bad in my life. Complain, complain. You know, my students memes reflect this too, you know, all, there's very few like wholesome memes as they call them. And they're mostly kind of memes about, you know, terrible things that are happening. You know, um, I think when we get out of the perspective that there's something there to save, um, and that there's something there to be grateful for, we can kind of lose something really important. And so sort of, I mean, this has been tricky for me is to realize like, okay, at least when I'm complaining, I need to balance it with a little bit of like, you know, actually things are pretty good when you get right down to it. Uh, but that can be really hard to do and, and, and counterintuitive to do too. We just don't feel like that's going to make us feel good. Well, yeah. I mean, I also think that there's like a deeper level of what you're talking about, that it's not just, you know, sweep all of the things that are like genuine struggles under the rug and like lead with sort of the platitude of like, but I'm grateful everything's fine, right? Like it has to come from a place of honesty of, you know, these are the things that are actually going well. These are kind of the blessings that I'm counting, right? Like having some self-honesty around that and checking in with it and not ignoring the things that aren't, there seems to be some kind of a balance there to me that would be impactful. Yeah. And I think it's more, it's, it's kind of like kind of determining what's a real problem in life and what's a stupid problem in life. And, you know, and I think about this, you know, when I look at some of the student memes, right, you know, like the memes aren't about, you know, like, you know, there's like, you know, climate change and we need to face it. The memes are often like, you know, dining hall food was sucky or like, you know, like, I don't know, like there was a long wait time for the printer. It's like, 
not really a crisis, right? Like not really a thing that is making your life actually bad, right? And so I think what we want to do is like, sometimes the complaints just kind of, we can get so wrapped up in them that we forget what is good in the world. And it's kind of one of these, you know, you got to put your own life mask on first before helping others. I think like, you know, before you tackle these like big problems out there, you need to do it from a place of strength. And we forget that, you know, taking time to be grateful for what we really do have can actually get us to a place of strength where we're like, okay, you know, I, I actually, things are going well, this can be okay, let me tackle this. Um, and it's just kind of a different worldview, but I think it can be much more powerful than we often realize to come to these things from a place of gratitude and from a place of strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else, um, specific things that y- either you have found work really well or that the science says works really well that you would love for folks to think about or implement? Yeah, I'll just give one last one because I know uh, it's really, really hard for me, but the research suggests it can be really powerful, um, which is uh, the sort of impact of what researchers are now calling time affluence, um, which is sort of feeling wealthy in time. You know, we often think that to be happy, we have to do everything. And so we fill our calendars with all kinds of stuff. You know, sometimes when I look at my calendar, it's just like a sea of red, you know. Um, but the research shows that uh, happiness actually comes from feeling like you have an abundance of free time. This idea of time affluence isn't the objective amount of free time you have. It's kind of like how, how time full you feel. Um, it's sort of the opposite of what many of us experience, which is what's called time famine, when you're literally like starving for time all the time. That's what my Yale students go through when they feel so overwhelmed. So the counterintuitive thing is to just like find ways to like leave your calendar absent. Like uh, these days I kind of go in and put little blocks that's like time affluence. And when I get to them, it can really feel amazing. Um, But I think in the modern age, this is one where we get wrong all the time. You know, we think I got to squeeze it all in, you know, to kind of enjoy everything in life. But then we can sometimes just feel so overwhelmed that, you know, just kind of not enjoying it. And this is even true uh, for kids. You know, I see it in my college students, but I also see this with parents where, you know, they go from play date to play date and they have soccer and then they have play date and they have homework. And it's like, man, your kid's calendar is just as like crazy as your calendar, like kind of ease up and give some space. And that can really help reduce the sort of anxiety we feel a lot of the time. Um, and it's also something that's often completely in our control. You know, we can kind of open these things up if we really want to, if we really put the time in, uh, but no pun intended there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This idea of, I mean, I we talked obviously about like money and happiness, but I think about time and happiness or just the the interplay between those two, right? Or those three, like time and money and happiness and like what that actually looks like. And so much of wanting money is actually wanting free time. And I, I, there, there's just mm-hmm. something in what you just said that feels very resonant for me. Yeah, I know. That's great. And I think, again, for me, that I always often end with that one, because for me, that's the hardest one, right? Like, Uh, this class has given me all kinds of things and I'm so grateful for it, but it's also made me really busy as well as the podcast. Um, So I think being very explicit about protecting your time uh, can be an important skill to develop. Yeah. I mean, the last thing that I'll say about this, I remember in the article that was published about you and your work in the cut last year, the like one sentence that I remember really struck me that I like pulled out of it was the quote that said, an abundance of money is considered a status symbol while an abundance of time is considered shameful. Mm-hmm. And like there is and, something about that. I was just like, oh shit, like that's so real. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, the the sad thing is like the opposite is true for happiness. Like people often give up so much time to go after money when the research shows that people 
people who give up money to get extra time feel better, you know, and not all of us are privileged enough to do that. But if you are, I think if you can kind of, you know, forego some money to get a little extra time, uh, that really will impact your happiness possibly. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these episodes are with a series of hopefully fun rapid fire questions that um, my Patreon community chooses. So if you are down to answer seven completely random questions, that's how we will end this episode. That sounds fun. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Okay. The first one, what are you totally obsessed with right now? What am I totally obsessed with right now? I'm really obsessed with quinoa. I've just been on a weird quinoa kick, quinoa with soy sauce on it. For some reason, that is this that is this week's obsession. <laughs> What's one of the most impactful lessons that you've learned so far this year? Uh, one of the most impactful lessons I've learned this so far this year. Um, this one is a little bit of a sad one, but I think it's it's very important. Um, so, you know, I'm in this uh, kind of college mental health space, and we recently uh, in the college world had a suicide of one of our main uh, crisis counselors. So this is a person at a university who was like the head of dealing with college student mental health crisis who himself uh, committed suicide. And the lesson that I learned from that is that we have to make sure we're taking care of the caretakers. And if we ourselves are a caretaker, we need to kind of be putting our own uh, oxygen mask on first before helping others. And we often forget that, but it ends up being really, really important. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. What's one thing that you are actively working to get better at? A small thing. A small thing that I'm actively working to get better at. So I really, I I do yoga and I really want to get good at crow pose, uh, which is a kind of like, you know, forearm handstand kind of pose. Um, That's very, very hard. uh, And I'm not great at arm balances, but I'm currently working on crow pose. How do you typically spend the first hour of your day? What does that look like? Uh, My first hour of the day, in the best case scenario, the first hour of my day is that I get up uh, and meet a friend to take a hike uh, in my local state park. Um, So when the weather is nice and my days are going particularly well, I'll be out with a good friend taking a hike. Mm, That sounds good. What about on your, when you said in the best case scenario? (laughs) On the the not great days, it's sometimes like, you know, rainy days, it's like, you know, me on my elliptical or sometimes, you know, me (laughs) skipping exercise, sleeping in and frantically running off to my first meeting. (laughs) When you think back on the past couple of months, what's one thing that you're feeling really proud of? Uh, I think the new podcast, I think it's, I I think I'm really proud of how it ended up turning out and I'm really hopeful that it's going to help people. Yeah. Uh, The next question is about books, which two or three books, they can be any genre related or not to anything that we've talked about. Would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Ooh, that's particularly tough. One that I recommend to my students a lot um, is a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone, uh, which is a book kind of that tells you kind of all the bad things that we sometimes learn about from technology um, and gives you kind of concrete strategies uh, to actually break up with your phone. Um, So that is one that comes up a lot. Um, One that's really influenced my life a lot uh, is a book by the Nobel Prize winning psychologist Danny Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's just like, you know, a a treatise on all our cognitive biases and kind of how the mind works that I think is great for novices, but also great for like practitioners in the field. And another one that is just a book that I just uh, love. It's a children's book called The Phantom Toll Booth. Um, which if you haven't read it as a child, uh, read it as an adult because it kind of teaches you a lot. Um, but it's a story about a little boy who is so bored that he was kind of like 
couldn't even figure out what to do. And he goes on this sort of amazing adventure. And I think it kind of incorporates a lot of the sorts of tips uh, that we learn about in the science of happiness in a kind of nice children's book form. Okay, I love that. I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take based on what we talked about? Yeah, I think the call to action would be to, if you listen to the episode, you can have probably heard a couple cases where you're like, oh, I do that. And I feel like I do that automatically. My mind is lying to me recognize those kinds of cases and realize that as humans, a cool thing is that we can fight against our natural tendencies. We just have to kind of put the will in and understand our minds enough to do that. Yeah. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Well, these days, I think you should learn more by connecting uh, with my new podcast called The Happiness Lab. It launches September 17th and you can grab it wherever you get your podcasts from Apple, Spotify to Stitcher, um, you can also uh, learn more about me on Twitter. I'm Lori Santos, L-A-U-R-I-E-S-A-N-T-O-S on Twitter. Um, and you can check me out also on our Happiness Lab website, which is happinesslab.fm. I love it. I will put links to all of those things in the show notes by the time this airs. The podcast will be out. And I'm so excited about that. Lori, thank you so much. Thanks so much. It was great to chat. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Kim. Hi, Kim. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a fun little round of four rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I'm ready. What's a small, regular thing that you do to take care of yourself? What does taking care of yourself look like lately? Okay, so taking care of myself looks like... um, The past 10 days, I was dog-sitting, and so I was out of my family's home and in a huge house by myself with my dog and the dog I was watching, and um, part of self-care during that time was just not leaving the house, not talking to anyone. I had no cell service there, and I really just got to be back into, um, my routine, me, me and the pups, um, really, really deep relaxation and reflection and contemplation, um, for next steps in my life. Kind of like getting paid to be on a mini vacation. Mm, That sounds lovely. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) What's something intentional that you're doing in your financial life right now? Okay. So in my financial life, um, I had a really work poor summer where I put my, my stokes in the fire in all different places and it didn't really pan out the way I expected. So, um, right now I was just dog sitting. I was catering. Um, I, uh, cleaned someone's apartment for an Airbnb I started substitute teaching again. I'm really just trying to get all the little pieces of work I can to um, to start saving my funds for future adventures. And that being said, I'm also 
starting some, uh, you know, kind of Excel spreadsheets and things of what these adventures might cost rather than wing it. I really want to be intentional about what they cost and frankly, if I can afford to do them or how long it might take to be able to afford to do them. Yeah, that's a really honest answer, which I appreciate. I am also a fan of the let's make Excel spreadsheet budgets for potential adventures. And it was so interesting for me prior to moving into the van because it's sometimes hard to budget for something that you have no experience in doing, right? And other people were really generous with their information and, you know, what it's been like for them. And you can research and make your best guess. But it's it's (laughs) been an interesting, you know, last couple of months of, okay, did what I expect it to cost? Is that actually what it's costing? And in this area, no. In this area, yes. And to just kind of roll with it with the best laid plan possible has been an interesting experience. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> What's one thing that you would love to do before the end of the year? Oh, before the end of 2019. I would love to go camping in Vermont with my dog and visit a friend of mine who uh, has cancer. Yeah. Two really specific things. I love it. Yeah. Last question. What's one topic that you would love to hear more honest conversations about? What do you wish people were more open about? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really with you on the sex and money. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, every time you say those things, I, I, I agree. I'm just happy that you're talking about money. Uh, someone that I follow that I respect greatly just did a post about that and how they're sponsored by someone. But like, but I want to know, like, does that mean that you can live off of that? <laughs> and how long does that last? <laughs> because a lot of people I know that are sponsored by, um, like in the paddleboard community, um, they just get some free gear. Uh, Maybe they get a free board or something like that. Um, So, and then like sort of more specific to me, like I love hearing about sort of freelance work, money, how you deal with health insurance. It might be something that's more like since I'm 49, I feel like I can't not have health insurance ever again. Mm -hmm. And, um, I hear a lot of younger people that are winging it, you know, and I totally get that. But I just, it's always like, how do you get the freedom of, you know, maybe being mobile? But, um, you know, it's like, it's almost like I want someone to have a, you know, uh, just real specific information about all that. And I think it's, it just doesn't exist because everyone has such a different situation. Yeah. I I mean, I feel similarly in that I'm constantly curious about what I think of as kind of mundane honesty, right? Like, where did that money come from? What do you do with the first hour of your day? Like the the specifics of how people live their lives. And of course, Mm -hmm. we don't Mm -hmm. owe each other, right? Like all of that information. But I I do, I I think similarly, (laughs) I'm just always like really grateful when people are willing to be honest about especially the money stuff, even if their path isn't something that I could replicate or isn't something that I would want to replicate, Mm -hmm. it's just nice to kind of see behind the curtain to be like, okay, that's how they did that. That makes sense to me, right? And I've been thinking about Mm -hmm. that just for myself going forward and because it's something that I feel you know, quite committed to what does that kind of honesty look like for me? How much of my budget do I want to share, right? And to kind of help along the way. But yeah, I totally agree with you. That's something I'm really interested in as well. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> so you are a member of our Patreon support squad, speaking of money, means, which means that you're one of the people <laughs> that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since Ooh. you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show, for which I am super grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Okay. So um, first of all, I absolutely love that you have no, no uh, commercials and that you don't have sponsors. I wouldn't stop listening if you did. I wouldn't, you know, hold it against you at all. But the fact that you took a stand and said, this is how I want this to go. And there is a way to make that work. And that way is to have Patreon supporters. I think it's brilliant. I want to support it. Also, I love listening to, I mean, I just, I love listening to your podcast. Um, one of the things that I appreciate is, uh, to be honest, your sobriety. I've been sober now, um, August 11th was 20 years. And if I have an opportunity to pay it forward to a woman who is sober who is um, making great content and talking about real things, that's something that I want to support. I support a couple of true crime podcasts as well, <laughs> just because I think they're funny. <laughs> so, so I have different, you know, I have different things I want to support for different reasons, you know, but like I need to laugh and then I need to hear real conversations. Like mm -hmm. those are two things I need to have in my life every day. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. And I, I appreciate especially your comment about paying it forward. I think about that a lot, too. And yeah, I've been thinking, too, about the my personal desire for like laughter, kind of like joy, like you said, joy and deep thinking, like the combination of both of those things. And they often come from different sources of media or even <laughs> potentially different people in my life. But like that combo is really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure. Um, so I live in East Hampton, which is on Long Island in New York. And um, my Instagram is my name, Kim Nelipinski, which is K-I-M-N-A-L-E-P-I-N-S-K-I. -E um, and you can find me as one of Nicole's friends. <laughs> If you can't remember that spelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows this show to continue, and it'll be fun to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.